Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Newsroom Robots, the podcast where we explore the intersection of artificial intelligence and the news industry. I'm Nikita Roy, data scientist, media entrepreneur, and one of the many founders currently building their ventures at the Harvard Innovation Labs. On the Newsroom Robots, I'm excited to bring you insightful conversations with industry experts about how AI is impacting the way we do journalism. Joining me on the show today is Mark Hansen. Mark is a professor at Columbia Journalism School, where he teaches courses in computational and data journalism. He currently serves as the East Coast Director of the Brown Institute for Media Innovation, a joint venture of Columbia Journalism School and Stanford School of Engineering. Mark has been a long-standing visiting researcher at the New York Times R&D Lab and served as a consultant for HBO Sports. In today's conversation, we reflect on the overall AI conversation at the Online News Association's conference that just concluded. We talk about use cases for generative AI to help with tasks in investigative journalism and also discuss the issues of bias and privacy when using AI models. Welcome to Newsroom Robots. I've really been looking forward to having you on the show today. Thank you for having me. I look forward to our conversation. So, Mark, we're recording this episode today just a few days out from the conclusion of the Online News Association Conference in Philadelphia. And AI was certainly the most prominent theme over there. From the opening panel to every session block actually had an AI session, and it was the forefront of so many discussions. And you were at a very interesting panel discussion towards the end of the conference about non-cringy use cases for chat GPT in journalism, talking about 
the capabilities and limits of it in investigative work. And I want to get into that a bit as well today, because that was the only session that I was not able to go to about AI, since I was talking at the same time about product thinking. And I heard a lot about your session. So I want to get more into that on the podcast today. But before we get started, I want to reflect a bit on the overall AI conversation at the conference. And I'm really curious to know if there was any key takeaway or insight that you had regarding the whole AI conversation that happened there. Yeah, you're certainly right that that AI was a big character for discussion. So I saw some use cases. I, I saw some newsrooms trying things out. I felt like we were in a moment of, of experimentation and sharing. I tried this, it seemed to work. This is how I made it work. Or this didn't work for us at all. Or newsroom sharing experience to decide what's okay and what's not and what kinds of human processes have to be put in place to make sure that the results seem right or that you know, you're getting the most out of something. I feel like there's a lot of implicit knowledge built up in these models and the way they're, they're constructed and how you interact with them. So sharing experience seems really important. What was your takeaway? What did you seem to think? Oh, I'm getting interviewed here, <laughs> turning the mic around. <laughs> this is your area. So like, what did you think? One of the main sessions that I was blown away by was uh, Jeremy Kaplan's AI session, how he was talking about all of the different AI tools. He had about 23 different tools all throughout the day that he was talking about how he was using it. So I think that really helped a lot of people in the room who were very new to AI being like, it's not just Chad GPT, but there are just different types of AI tools that you could use throughout. So that was something that it was the first session I was at at the conference. It was like on the Wednesday morning. And so that really set the stage for me. I think hearing about Microsoft being part of the conference and then they had an AI breakfast and they came and spoke to us quite openly, I would say, and we had a very frank conversation, though they don't have answers for everything. And I'm Liz Danzico agreed to come on the podcast. So Microsoft will be here on the podcast very soon. And I'll get to ask her a lot more questions than I was able to at the conference. So I think it was interesting to see Microsoft there. What I was noticing was there was no other like social media platform other than Reddit kind of over there as well. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I that's what I noticed. Yeah, I, I always get a little concerned when sessions in these places are a little too packed with corporate people who are selling products. But like I said, I, th I think there were a lot of people sharing their experiences, a lot of people trying to motivate the fact that even large language models are good for other than language tasks, right? There are data processing tasks and, and things that, that can be applied. The point I tried to make in our panel was that these systems represent a uh, prototyping tool for AI platforms that would ordinarily be quite difficult to pull off if you had to rely on more traditional machine learning or natural language processing methods. And so by dropping the barrier really low, you could have people try things out in ways that they couldn't have before. So yeah, it was really interesting to me to see how much AI took over the conversation. But if it didn't happen this time, I don't know when it would, right? Like this feels like the year to talk about it and then to understand what's going on because it's here and it's not going anywhere. So what do we do about it? Yeah, I think I was also surprised that how many people were using it. And I was happy about that. But there were also quite a few people who still weren't, who had just played around with it and were quite honest in saying that they use it 
just for a very basic use case and still we're struggling with how to use chat GPT. So I think that's what the conference really helped with people. And I think it brings about the light of the important issue of like AI literacy in the newsroom. Just talking about chat GPT isn't enough, but how can people use it other than just asking it to write a headline or an SEO description? Right. I think I think that's very important. One of the things that came out in our panel was the need to make sure that people, people who are decision makers about this need to have at least tried it and give GPT a, a spin or you know, talk to one of your coworkers and see what they're using it for. I, one of the panelists asked everyone to raise their hand if they at least tried it. And this is a Saturday. It's one of the last sessions. So the only people in the room are going to be people who have tried it. So everybody raised their hand. I think everybody. And then first it was, have you used it for personal uses? And everybody had their hand up. And now it's, then it was, keep your hand up if you used it for work. And most people, I mean, a few hands came down, but most people, their hands stayed up. And I think it's finding more and more use in, in the newsroom. And we're going to have to figure out what each institution thinks about what their standards will be around how it gets used. Yeah, I'm quite interested more to hear about the use cases you discussed, because from the description, it was talking about how to use Chad GPT for like investigative work. And how do you see its role to help out with that side of journalism? A lot of what I end up teaching, I'm not going to teach them to write a headline. I'm not going to teach them to come up with lead paragraphs. I'm not really interested in GPT figuring out what the five questions are you're supposed to ask the Pope. Those are kind of like less interesting to me. I'm more interested in can it come up with labels for a collection of data? Can it tell me something from a set of documents and create some structured data out of unstructured data? There are knowledge tasks that it can help with that I think are, are really useful when it comes to sort of basic investigations. It can help you with like large quantities of documents and things. It almost immediately though brings up the question, I think of like, are you going to use a chat GPT or the one of the clot or something like that? Or, or are you going to run something yourself? Because if someone's given you some precious tranche of documents, first thing you don't want to do is upload them to OpenAI or something like that. That seems like a mistake. So how, how are you going to take advantage of these tools if you want to keep control of your data? But there are so many interesting knowledge, like uh, investigative tasks or things that you can do with documents especially if they're, they're already public, things that you can do to structure data, things that you can do to draw insights from data that are really useful. They're the kinds of things that I won't ever write NLP code for again, right? Because the GPT answers are as reliable as my NLP code. Can you just say what NLP is for our listeners? Sorry, natural language processing code. So natural language processing is a branch of machine learning or maybe you can call it a branch of AI now, but it's a, or a branch of statistics, I, I don't know. But it's, it's an old discipline that tries to make, in effect, make language computational. And so some of the key questions are like part of speech tagging or can you take text and classify or can you summarize or can you do translation? There, there are a series of activities that we engaged in and we tried to teach models to do before GPT. And some of them are now just a lot easier with GPT or, or with, a, with large language models. And so the complexity of dealing with that kind of, of text-based data has, has dropped considerably. 
Yeah, exactly. And I just saw ChatGPT, OpenAI just made an announcement this week about launching ChatGPT for enterprises and their enterprise version of the model that would allow businesses. It's now SOC 2 compliant, so it has a bit of more privacy than ChatGPT does. And just so many more use cases, though they don't have any like open pricing right now, you have to contact them for a demo. And a lot of big companies have been listed as clients of theirs with the ChatGPT for Enterprise version. How do you see that being a game changer for the industry? I think it's important to be able to experiment with other kinds of models or with other other model providers, depending upon the, the task at hand, certain models are can be better than others. If I'm not mistaken, and I could very well be, but like the latest version of Claude allows for a context that's considerably larger than than what you might get with GPT, which can change, possibly change how you interact with, with it in, in the first place. You know, I think if there are certain protections in place, certain privacy protections and so on. I mean, I'd have to look at the, the terms of use and see what see what what's being promised. I always get a little nervous turning around and giving data to Google or wherever. So <laughs> Yeah, and also it's like a bit of an arms race, right? All of these models coming about and which one would probably perform better if you're tied to one of them. I feel like it's a bit of the same you can draw parallels to issues with the CMS. You have all of these different tech providers that newsrooms might go with, and then you're stuck with the licensing deals. But what if something else currently comes out and it's better than that? Right. I mean, mean, my use of of GPT-4, let's say, is all through the API. So in that sense, I don't feel like I've ever really bought any, like... I haven't like the amount of effort that it's taken to make use of open AI versus versus Anthropic or something like that seems pretty low if it's just a bunch of AI, API calls. I think it would depend on, you know, whether I'm hosting data in a place and, and what that sort of thing looks like or starts to look like. Because you're right, I don't want to get at this point in time, I don't want to be frozen to any any provider. OpenAI also, uh, just before ONA had announced something about using GPT for content moderation, so there are there are definite problems that are kind of hard to solve that GPT may have a, a reasonable chance at at doing a good job on and doing it with sort of less complexity. Yeah, what are your thoughts on using GPT for content moderation? <laughs> I don't. I, I read a little bit about how they were making plans or how the you would interact with the system. You know, maybe uploading some some labeled data if you like or or whatever. I. The only things I have to say here are trivial. It seems to be a hard problem. It's been a notoriously hard problem in the past. It's also been the kind of problem that we need, we've historically needed a lot of labeled data. And that puts a lot of people in really uncomfortable positions having to label, right, sort of just awful content. So if there were a large language model way around that, that seemed to minimize the amount of labeling required, maybe that's that's something. I know that that to get GPT to behave in the way that it does, to be so cheery and polite all the time and to refuse to to comment on certain things, right? There's a lot of a lot of human-based reinforcement learning that's happened. And I don't know what the implications of that are for the people who are involved. Could you actually talk more about what you just spoke about reinforcement learning? And I think that's a topic we haven't spoken about in the podcast as well. Can you talk more about how that human reinforcement learning is powering the GPT model that we're seeing right now? So originally, the underlying formulation for GPT-2, GPT-3, I'm guessing GPT-1, was a predictive one. So 
given a set of tokens, a set of words, maybe the beginning of a sentence, what comes next? What word comes next? And this is an old an old device, Markov, mm-hmm. <laughs> famously Claude Shannon looked at, at predictive models for the next character that comes next or the next word that comes next in his 1940-something paper and for various reasons, right? So for Shannon, it was all about it's all about compression, coding theory. If I can describe what comes next, you know, with reasonable precision, then that model can help me compress data. And it's sort of what's it behind GZIP and, and these kinds of programs. But there's a, an underlying prediction problem of giving us the beginning of a sentence or a few words, what word should come next? And GPT-2 had an interface that let you type a little then it would make some recommendations and you could pick one and maybe a phrase or something would appear and then you could type a little bit more and and it would continue. And so really what this model was doing was just sort of helping you write. And then it was discovered that if you, if you created a document in a clever way, you could get the system to perform tasks for you and not just write sentences. So one of the common examples is translation. So you start a sentence, English colon hello, French colon bonjour, English colon skyscraper, French colon, and then in predicting what comes next, it gives you the translation of skyscraper into French, right? And suddenly, or maybe not so suddenly, but suddenly you go from a writing aid to an unsupervised um, multitask learner. And so there are these different tasks that it's capable of that you could specify initially would specify by getting your prompt, writing it out just right so that your prompt, by completing your prompt, it's performing the tasks that you were interested in. This sort of leads us from a change from a writing aid to a chat assistant, as OpenAI calls them. So to help you perform tasks and to do that, they wanted to the desire to maybe make that a little bit more regular to to kind of formalize that to improve its behavior right so to use human labeled data to get better at certain tasks cuz so far it was doing all these tasks like translation just because of the way it was trained to predict what comes next. It wasn't trained in particular to do translation or in particular to do math. It learned grammar because it learned about what comes next. It learned world knowledge, like things about cats and dogs and whatever, because it learned to predict what comes next. If you wanted to to do very specific tasks, you could imagine using or you could use reinforcement learning. That is, here's a given task. Did it get the answer right or not? And reinforce those predictions that tend to get you to a path where something is the right answer. Right. And so reinforcement learning is is just a way of aiding with that task based orientation for a large language model, for example. There's a lot of talk about about GPT maybe losing some of its um, flamboyance because there's a greater emphasis put on getting an answer right or giving you the something correctly. And I think that's what's called um, mode collapse, right? The, the entropy of, of the responses is getting less because of the, the reinforcement learning. Anyway, the reinforcement stage is something that, that from a maybe a, a storytelling angle takes us from a writing aid to a chat assistant, right? That it's doing something more for you and not just completing a sentence for you. 
Yeah, I think that's very helpful description to understand exactly what's powering this model and how it's kind of learning by doing every single time we ask it something and then it inputs and it just reinforces the behavior and the pattern of that model. Another really cool feature that's currently my favorite is the code interpreter or what's now they very recently rebranded it as advanced data analysis to be more reflective of what it's actually capable of. I want to hear more about your kind of thoughts on it, experiments with it. How do you see this as being a powerful tool for journalism? Well, so I teach students how to work with data and I I don't teach Excel or something like that. I usually teach them a little Python. And when they're starting out, there's a lot of a lot of Googling going on, right? So how do I use pandas to do whatever? How do I classify, I don't know, like a series of tasks and a lot of Googling and then a lot of grabbing code, putting code into like a collab notebook or something like that and seeing how it works or something didn't work. So Googling the error message and seeing what what does Stack Overflow have to say about how I how I should deal with this. And so there's already coding's already an exercise that you do like with the internet, right? Like there's already like or with the web, right? You're not you're not going alone. Even I can't like every year I teach there's some core of what I teach that's the same because there are some basics about Python that you just need to know and we have to cover it at some point. And every year I'm like, God, I can't remember how to do that. And so you Google it and you grab it and you put it in and away you go. And I think it rehearses for the students the idea that, you know, even if you've been doing this for a while, there's gonna be things that you were, I mean, it's a memory act. It's a, something like that. So having a good search engine in the web will get you along pretty far. It'll also help you problem solve. And, you know, at one level, I think Code Interpreter or, you know, maybe even Cody is going to be similar is providing you with a, a framework to perform those app, those tasks in a tidier way, right? And maybe you're not banging into something, but you said, you know, look, I've done this a thousand times or, or maybe this is my first time. How can I, you know, read this data in and this CSV or Excel file and produce for me a summary of income levels across the data set or something like that? There's one of the columns labeled income. What I like about the code interpreter is that while it will, in a very chatty, cheery way, tell you what it's done, it also provides you with some code. So you can, it even labels it as showing your work. So it'll show you what it's done. And then if you're an old hand at it, you can read the code. It's My experience is that it's it's well commented, probably better commented than the code I produce. And so you can go through the code and see if it makes sense or not. And a lot of the criticisms that you hear of sort of depending on an AI system has to do with the sorts of confabulations that it might produce. The, you know, it might produce, in this case, it might produce code that doesn't work or it might produce code that, you know, has some some error, isn't exactly addressing the problem that you're interested in. Code Interpreter at least runs the code and shows you the output of it. So you know the code runs. It still may not be doing exactly what you want to do because you've specified it in language and you're, depending upon how familiar you are with coding, maybe you haven't specified it precisely enough or not. But the point is, it's not just going out and doing magic and coming back and saying your answer is five. It's showing you how it did it. And I think that's what people, especially those who really need 
these answers to be right, like journalists, having these secondary artifacts that might have been produced through a process that is effectively magic to us. But here's some, here's some code, and that code isn't magic. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. That code will specify exactly what a computer is supposed to do, and you can decide if it's doing the right the right thing or not. I'm still struggling a little bit with how to take these tools and introduce them in the classroom. I, there are much smarter people than me who are ahead of me on this in terms of I don't teach for another seven weeks, so I have a little time to uh, to get a sense of of what sort of best practice looks like. But teaching is definitely going to be quite quite different now because these tools will be integrated in every editor and every coding framework you might have. And so how do you work with them? Yeah, I'm quite interested about that, especially because it's great for people who are coding right now. You have a lot of additional tools like GitHub Copilot and in within Google Colab as well that would just, you give it a prompt and using AI, it would generate the code for you. And now what I love, because I use Google Colab all the time, it, when I run into errors, it also, I can ask it to explain the error to me. And so in natural language, it exactly tells me what the error is and what the fixes need to be, which is something that I would have been spending so much time on Stack Overflow previously, which was just this Q&A community where you post your question, your error, and then people help you out. But now AI is helping you out. And I think this is also pretty relevant for people who are just using AI in text generation or teachers who are worried about using it for students who are going to just write their essay. You're going to have students who could just write their code and complete assignments that way. How concerned are you about all of these different issues? And is there a different way in which you're thinking teaching needs to evolve so that students because you know that students can use these tools now to help them. I'm not sure that the right answer is to say don't use them because you're right. Like sometimes error messages are really opaque. And, you know, one of the reasons like in the in a collab notebook, you can ask it to refer your error to Stack Overflow and it'll do the search for you. You know, we've long let students go on to Stack Overflow and other, you know, and just the open web and figure out what's wrong with their with their code. And that's an act of trust also. You code, right? And so how do you figure out when you go to Stack Overflow who's trustworthy and who's not when they're giving you an answer? Yeah, sometimes it's like, oh, this is great. You sound really authoritative and it doesn't work. Or it's for, you know, the wrong version of Python or a thousand reasons, right? And, you know, R is even a little worse because R's error messages are can be really opaque. And 
you know, I think what one of our instructors at the J school, the, the data students were learning a little Python and then a little R. And, you know, the syntax for the two is very different. Expectations are very different. But, you know, with having learned one language, things like Copilot and whatever uh, can help you get to another one, right? Like you kind of have a sense of, of sort of what you want to ask and sort of what you want to have it do. And, and it'll help you, you know, get on top of the error messages much faster. But in terms of like ordering, because I know what the end state should look like, right? The end state is that you should know enough code to be able to take this code artifact and make sure it's doing the right thing. I feel like we don't want to just have it turn out code that we turn around and run in a production kind of way. Like we should really read through it and make sure we understand what it, which means we have to understand what code is doing. So we have to understand something of, of a coding language or we have to have the capacity to, to get to that understanding. So code interpreter, help me understand or something like it, help me understand what a piece of code is doing right? Like it could break it down. The code interpreter generates is already well documented. I mentioned that before, but like there could be other things that it does where it breaks it down and gives you this piece does this and this piece does this and and so on. So I have to think a little bit about how to stage the lessons so that we're, we're learning a bit, we're learning to ask questions, we're, we're learning to speak the language, but in a way that we, that we understand what or we have the capacity to understand what's going on and we're not being invited to blindly run code and then report on the results of, of code that's all kind of blind. So we have to we have to get to some basic understanding of how these languages work or the syntax of a language and so on. And, you know, may, maybe some, at some point that'll entirely change. Maybe the act of coding goes away and it's we're comfortable enough that we can have an assistant do something for us. I, I don't know, do you feel like you could get to a place where you could maybe not right now, but you could just ask a computer in natural language, analyze this data for me and and just expect that it, it won't require any more critical thought. Yeah, I feel like that's what the new advanced data analysis or the previous code interpreter feature is capable of doing right now. I was playing around with it by putting in data and just asking it like Google Analytics data and asking it produce 10 visualizations for me or asking it like, what are the top referral sources? And it would write the code and give me all of the analysis. And I was just seeing it as somebody who maybe doesn't know how to code or you don't have a data journalist in your newsroom, you're a really small newsroom, but you have so much of data on just like open data from government services that you could just download, put it into Code Interpreter and just ask it to find trends and patterns. And you see it breaks it down and it thinks about how it should portray everything and it produces graphs for you so quickly, which would take me time. It would take me time to clean the data, put it into a graph and I think it definitely is definitely a better skill to have that you are able to understand the code. But for somebody who doesn't know how to code as well, it gives you the analysis and it gives you, shows you the data in completely natural language. So it's not perfect all the time. It still gets confused and it's not able to figure out the code from time to time. But I feel like that key skill of journalists where you're able to interview, you can now interview your data and we might be getting to that future very soon. Do you think so? But see, I guess that was my question to you. So to say that I'm interviewing the data, in this case, interview is mediated by a third party, right? So I'm not looking directly at the data and I'm not, 
if I'm only asking questions and I'm not involved in any of sort of code layer or I'm not maybe more directly orchestrating the computation, however that however that looks, or I can't audit it, then I'm a little nervous about that. And maybe I'm a little old fashioned here, but I, I worry about someone saying, like we talk about bias in AI models all the time, right? And so, you know, my background is in statistics, right? And I don't expect that these things will put statisticians out of a job. It'll definitely change the character of the profession, absolutely. But I wonder a little bit about, worry rather, about blind analyses that you're going to want to be able to look at, ask more questions. I think this would be an interesting learning aid, right? Like this can help you get somewhere, but as a tool, you're going to have to figure out, it feels unlikely to me that the end state tool use is analyze this data for me. Tell me what's interesting here, right? Like those aren't going to be the big open-ended questions. Like you could ask it, right? You could tell code interpreter, like you said, give me five plots or whatever, right? But don't think that's going to be the way that data analysis is going to be performed. I think it's going to really leverage, it may provide you the capacity to leverage what you know about a data set or about a particular situation and be able to ask more targeted questions. The very open-ended, give me five things here or do this. I, but I'm not sure that that's the way that data analysis is, is going to go. I think as like more of like an exploratory analysis that somebody takes you're not having a whole data team and you want to ask a question that you're figuring out is digging into the data and you just, you know what question you want to ask and you ask it. And because you can see all of the code and you can see how it's doing the entire analysis, it's only because of that that I feel like it's not a black box because I can be more comfortable that it's true since it's actually following a process and similar code that I would do as a data analyst or as part of the team. And but through that way, it would have it. I'm totally with you. Like if you have a targeted question or you know something about, like there's a community of practice around the analysis of a particular data set. So you know that like it's income and we want to like record medians or something. And to a certain extent, maybe GBT could pick up on that, right? It could pick up on the, or a large language model or something could pick up on the particular summary statistics that are appropriate for certain kinds of data. I could imagine that happening, but I feel like, yeah, if there's something that there's knowledge that you're bringing to the question, right? When the exploratory analysis is totally open, I'd be curious to know what, process is that gets us to something. Because again, we talk so much about biases in the underlying sort of AI prediction system. It just seems to me like what kinds of analysis biases, like what would that look like, right? Like the biases that might come out, like would they be a bias in a choice of method, right? Like it's applying regression everywhere or it's logistic regression everywhere or something, I'm making this up. Or is it creating plots that strictly speaking, aren't appropriate or, I don't know, I, I just... I, what would bias look like in analysis? Yeah. Yeah. And we, I think we also all have kind of a, a secret belief that whatever we spent years being trained to do, that that's special and can't be done by like uh, some sort of a reasoning system, which is the process that, or the thing that, that journalists are going through now, right? Like I've spent a lot of time learning how to, to really craft a good story. Well, if if this system can craft a good story also, 
you know, what does that mean to me and my profession and how my profession is practiced, how I train people into my profession now. I think there's going to be a lot of big changes. And so asking me questions as a statistician about data analysis and automating data analysis puts me in that place as well. And so all I can tell you is I know things will change. I know that a lot of bad analysis will get done along the way. <laughs> a lot of conclusions or a lot of things will get missed along the way. But end state, I don't know what it looks like. I am, as you suggest, encouraged that at least these systems are all producing code. And it's not like a, a magic process that says the answer is five. And you have no idea how it came to that. At least there's a, an artifact that can no matter what the reasoning was that got you there, you can at least execute the steps and say, all right, I see what's happening here. Critical thinking is going to become really important and very important to show how you're coming to those analysis and drawing upon your experiences or that's where your knowledge about a particular domain and how you're integrating that with AI, that becomes important now. Right. Because I think the AI can take up like I said before, we've been forcing students into Stack Overflow and things like that to, to kind of correct their code or whatever. And this, to a certain extent, if it's consistently reliable enough, will remove some of that friction and keep you focused on the particular task of drawing inferences from a data set. And so that that's a huge plus, right? Especially for students who are just learning. I think some of the question then focuses on what, what tools or what methodological approaches do we choose to emphasize, especially if we can cover a lot more ground and we can cover that ground in more creative ways. Like maybe we, we rely on simulation-based inferential statistics as opposed to, or inferential processes, as opposed to like the t-test. We use a bootstrap or something like that because it's, we've got a computing system here that we're asking questions of. So they, it might as well take us, take a minute and, and do, uh, do a bootstrap analysis for us as opposed to something else because the barrier to entry is really low. And we know that this does a reasonably good job vast majority of the time. So, so there, are, there are things that will be different, I'm sure, in the way that we teach. Because teaching was different just by bringing R into the class instead of Stata or Excel or something like that, right? Once you bring R into your classroom, everything's different, right? And now if you can, if part of what is different is R's in the classroom, but the difficulty of learning R and that like that everyone has to go mm -hmm. through, right? If that also reduces because there's a smoother way to get us from what we want to the code that we need to produce, then that is going to help, help as well. Yeah, the potential of AI is to probably have a more quicker learning curve and understanding all of these tools maybe gets more people to look into how they can code and understand that and reduces that barrier, I think, to entry into tech as well, which might hopefully help a lot of people who have stayed away from code, especially a lot of women and come and enter STEM fields, I think would be an exciting way. I agree with that a thousand percent. And I think, you know, it'll also maybe have us focus on some of the first order questions in data analysis to begin with, right? Like the, the origin stories, like where are these data coming from in the first place, right? What position of power produced these? What categories are used? What do those categories mean? What are the histories of these categories? There's a few texts that I use at the beginning of my data classes that students, there's one called, an older book called Sorting Things Out, which is about categorization and 
implications of that. There's another called seeing like a state, which uh, what does it mean to have to have statistics that aggregate up to the state level and how does that destroy very local notions of certain kinds of concepts. And then Data Feminism by Dignazio and Klein is an amazing book that really exposes the power structures behind data collection and data analysis and who gets to analyze data and perspectives on data visualization. So I, I think, you know, if you could start to open some room in the class so it's not just about the mechanics of getting something done, but the sort of politics, if you will, the politics behind getting that work done and what that means, that would be better. Yeah, interesting. More deeper conversations around, yeah, the politics behind the data and rather than just knowing how to do, but understanding what's influencing the structures and the systems in place there. Well, these have been really very interesting and exciting points about, that you've brought up throughout the conversation. And I want to get a bit more personal and hear about, to wrap up our conversation, hear about really maybe how ChatGPT or any of these AI tools have been playing a role in your personal life. How has your life kind of changed since ChatGPT came around and this whole AI became a whole buzz with generative AI? Where have you been seeing opportunities for use cases in your own life? So I've done a lot of natural language processing, like process type methodologies. I've used a fair number of them in different projects from journalistic to maybe more design based work. And I've written a raft of code with packages like Spacey and text blob, <laughs> you know, you know, packages that, that maybe wrap other packages that are that are more complicated. And there's just a lot of that code that I won't have to write again because GPT version takes care of things really simply and allows me to express that computation in a way that feels more natural. Same is true for web scraping. This one of the durable problems of data journalism. There's some really interesting frameworks to do web scraping that, again, some things I'm just not going to worry about again. And then there's structured out of unstructured data. And there are things that you can do and ways that you can do it that you can make yourself as confident in what's happening as some of that old fiddly code that I had to write, with the exception that I don't have to write mounds and mounds of that code, right? You've probably had this experience that as things get hard and harder to express, just you're writing so much code for boundary cases and it's just so painful. And and some of that you don't have to write anymore. So And so my own personal practice, there, there are things that I'll just try that seem to work that I can either get to work relatively quickly or, you know, I can come to peace with and put some process in place to check and maybe segment out some special cases or something. And then, you know, as we've mentioned before, there's teaching and what this means to teaching. And I've just seen students take up these tools and it seems to me the wrong approach to say you can't use them. There have to be lessons maybe where they try something blind and then they try something together. But in a way, asking them not to use one of these tools is like saying don't consult the internet, right, or the web, which seems like, again, not really appreciating the technological condition they find themselves in. So there's a lot of code that has a lot of projects that I would approach differently now because the code is, because it's not about writing code anymore. It's about crafting a prompt in some way and how to firm that up, how to 
within my school and within, you know, between my collaborators, what the personal, professional, social, whatever relationships look like and processes look like so that we make sure that we're, what we're doing is right and we can check it and archive it and do whatever we need to do, right? Like there's, there's social processes as well. And on another level, we're having at Columbia, we're starting second Wednesday of every month. We're going to have just kind of a open work time from six to 9 PM. We'll provide the Institute I run will provide some food Maybe someone will talk about some neat thing they did at the start, five minutes, 10 minutes, then three hours of just working. And, you know, we could provide a prompt or a a problem that we'd like to see, you know, have somebody come in and say, you know, I'd really love to be able to do this. People can work on it or people can work on something that they're interested in and share it with their neighbor. Just basically like open social, I've always thought that like, that programming is a, is a team sport, right? And so this is the same kind of thing, right? So how do you access all the implicit knowledge in some of these, in some of these models and get the most of it? And I feel like right now we're in an experiment and share moment that I sort of mentioned at the beginning. So let's come together, have a few of these venues where you can, in a semi-public way, experiment and share your results. And, and we all get to learn something about about this really unprecedented time in computation. And is it mainly ChatGPT or other kind of models that you're also working on during this open time at Columbia? I mean, I'm, I'm happy to provide like whatever people might might need. I think we'll sort of focus on some form of large language model, although I want to make sure we have ample coverage for for other forms of, of generative AI. I'm a statistician by training, so you know, machine learning and all that is something that comes second nature to me. So, you know, I certainly wouldn't want to pitch someone out of the room because they were doing some more traditional, (laughs) some more traditional modeling as well. So. Exciting. Well, this is, this has been a really exciting conversation to actually have somebody else. And I love talking data and all about coding and kind of break down how you've also been using it and actually bring up some really valid points in terms of bias and how that might seamlessly also come about in data analysis and encoding and the opportunities that all of these models and generative AI has for also uplifting maybe voices that were not there in the room previously and how teaching is going to be different. I mean, we've covered quite a bit today and this has been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, Mark, for joining me and taking the time to delve deep into all of these different topics with me today. Well, thank you, Nikita. I I very much enjoyed it. So thank you. That was Mark Hansen, professor at Columbia Journalism School and the East Coast Director of the Brown Institute for Media Innovation. This episode is made possible thanks to the Harvard Innovation Lab's Spark Grant. I'm Nikita Roy, and this is Newsroom Robots. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.